Amen. We're going uh, to jump right into Matthew. We're back in Matthew's gospel. Uh, we are in chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 17 this morning. Um, we, we've been just kind of rallying through Matthew. We took about a year off uh, after the Sermon on the Mount all summer last summer, and, uh, and now we're jumping into Matthew chapters 8 through 12, and then we'll take a break after that and, and, and probably go to the Old Testament or something there. I'm not really sure what this fall looks like yet from a preaching perspective, but um, Matthew chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 are all about Jesus's authority and his healing and people really wrestling with the fact that he is coming as God, that he is coming as the Son of God who has mercy on sinful people. And so we see in these opening pages that people are wrestling with the identity of Jesus. And so this passage in, in Matthew 9, 1 through 17, black Bibles around the room, I want you to open those up, use the table of contents if you need to, grab, open up, fire up your Bible on your phone, or, or uh, hopefully you brought a Bible with you. I want us to be reading the words on the page. We're going to get to the passage here in just a moment. But this passage opens us up to three surprising ways that Jesus is good, good, good to the undeserving. And then he'll tease the new covenant coming. He'll tease his, his death that is coming um, in, in, as the story progresses. Um, in, in Matthew's gospel, we are brought face to face with people who recognize Jesus's unique authority. He's healing. He's setting people free from disease. He's delivering them from demonic oppression. He is speaking to the weather and the water, and it's obeying him and listening to him. He's teaching as one who has authority like no one that they have ever heard in their lifetime. And then we're also brought face-to-face with people who might see Jesus' miracles and witness this and hear firsthand accounts of this, but still deny his authority. And so we see this conflict that's happening as people's faith is being awakened in the God of Israel, delivering them in the moment, on the spot, and also people who are saying, no, 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 this, there's no way that this could be Messiah. So whenever Jesus enters the scene, either then or now, there is bound to be controversy. You know this, you know the feeling when you bring him up in conversations with a person who you don't know where they stand on Jesus of Nazareth and and things kind of go wonky there for a minute. You kind of look at each other blankly in the eyes and wonder where this conversation is going to go and how they are going to respond to you. Some people love Jesus, some people hated Jesus. Here's the big idea this morning in this passage. Jesus is authoritative and he's controversial, bringing joy to some and anger to others. Where are you in that spectrum? Where are you? Do you joyfully give Jesus the authority that he is worthy of? Let's pick up in Matthew 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. He's just had some pretty colorful events with a couple of demon-possessed guys. Uh, He has recently healed a man with leprosy. He's talked to a couple of would-be disciples and kind of put them on their heels a bit. And now he's getting back into a boat. He's, cr- he's crossing over the Sea of Galilee and coming to his own city, which is Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, a man who was paralyzed, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
And behold, some of the scribes, these are some of the religious rulers in the city, some of these scribes, they say to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed Jesus. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from Hosea in the Old Testament, chapter six, verse six. He said, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John the Baptist came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. This is the word of God. Father, would you open it up to us to see and to experience, to see the beauty and the authority and the power and the wonder and the goodness of your son, Jesus. Would we marvel at him this morning, please? In your name, amen. We've got, I've got three basic kind of headers here, which are going to correlate with the sections that we just read. So the first one is the paralyzed man, the joy of complete healing. And we're talking about physical healing here and also the forgiveness of sins. The second will be, we'll be looking at the ostracized men and women, the joy of complete acceptance. And then third, the ignorant but teachable ones, John the Baptist's disciples, the joy of this coming new covenant. Um, complete healing is a miracle. Like, has anyone here ever seen somebody completely healed before your eyes? There's a handful of hands, but by far you're in the minority. It awes us. It's fairly rare in our day to see it with our own eyes, especially physical healing. It's important to remember, though, that when we read the Bible, the Bible is far different from Harry Potter or from The Lord of the Rings. As wonderful as some of those novels are, they're not real human history. The scriptures tell us of miraculous things that are hard to believe, but it's rooted in human history. This stuff has really happened. That's what the Bible is putting forward. That's what the scriptures are putting forward for us to believe. Um, familiarity with God that is separated from experience of God is dangerous. Where we're just kind of 
familiar with what he does, but it's separated from our experience of him. So if you've been a Christian for a while, you know how easy it is to read the scriptures, to read the Bible and miss the extraordinary accounts of what, have happen- of what has happened in your real human history. We just read the scriptures or we listen to the scriptures and Jesus is healing people and casting out demons and Moses is parting the Red Sea and there's all kinds of, of nature-bending, miraculous things happening. And we just kind of, because we're familiar, oftentimes we'll just read right over the top of them and they won't seize us with a kind of awe. But we are, I want to just call us to remember, like, what are we reading here? This is rooted in our real history. This is not fable. This is not myth. Jesus had real flesh, kicked up real dust by his feet, had a real look in his eyes, really went to the bathroom, really spoke to people, really had a zip code in our history. After some considerable events over the last few days, uh, Jesus heads back to his mission base, the city of Capernaum, near the Sea of Galilee. Um, Mark and Luke both record this account of Jesus healing the paralyzed man in their Gospels, but Matthew tells it in in a peculiar way. It's sort of free of all of the colorful detail. Um, By stripping away the detail, I think what Matthew and and scholars believe what Matthew is doing here is trying to give us, give the reader, a razor-sharp picture of Jesus' authority. We cannot miss this. That's what Matthew is aiming at, gunning for here. He wants us to see and to wrestle with the authority of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, here is the critical detail that shapes how Jesus sees the faith of these people. One of the Gospels says there were four people who carried the paralytic into Jesus' presence. Jesus, This account in Matthew says Jesus sees their faith and then speaks to this man. He speaks healing to this man. There's a crowd around Jesus. The other Gospels tell us that there's a crowd around Jesus of Nazareth here, and these people carrying their paralyzed friend cannot get into the house where Jesus is teaching. They can't even get to the door, and so they innovate. They carry their friend up to the top of this ancient Palestinian home, and they begin to tear back the roof tiles on this home. It's not like our house. They it's a little bit more, a little less t- uh, permanent than our, you know, roofing materials are. And they start to tear back the roof and they somehow innovate again and figure out how to lower their paralytic friend who, if he bites the dust in front of them, that's going to be bad, right? They, they, they lower him and then they leave him. They're left up top. So this guy is all alone in the presence of Jesus. It's like, it's an extraordinary moment here. That's the faith that Jesus saw. He sees their faith. Now, faith, our trust in God, it results in action. So whether tearing back roof tiles, whether staying sober, or whether waiting for your friend to be open to the gospel, faith is active. It moves us forward actively. It is not passive. Now, faith can actively wait on purpose. It can stay put and wait for God to move as we are, even just surrounding the conversation of this building down 16th Avenue in Post Falls. Or it can make you really break a sweat and eke it out and go and open some doors, trusting that God is going to move and is going to answer. In this case right here, though, the faith of one man's friends makes an extraordinary impact on his life. And their faith was controversial. 
and their faith was potentially really offensive. They push all of their chips in on Jesus' mercy. So think about this. You lower, you tear back the roof tiles of a house that you don't own and lower your friend in the middle and stop Jesus mid-sermon. And you are up top, able-bodied, and your paralytic friend is at the mercy of whatever Jesus or the homeowners want to do in this moment. So imagine kind of the look and the expectation in his eyes as he's waiting to see how in the world is Jesus going to react. I don't know, guys. I don't think this is a good idea. You know, And he's like getting lowered. He doesn't have any control over that, apparently. If Jesus was offended, they'd have a serious problem on their hands. If the homeowners were, were offended, same. And the, but they came to Jesus with three things that Jesus really values. Faith, hope, and love. They had faith that Jesus could heal. They had hope that he would heal. And they had love for their friend that beckoned them forward in this kind of bold intercession. Jesus' first word to this guy, right out of the gates, take heart, my son. Take heart means take courage have courage. And then he calls him my son. It's a term of endearment, generally spoken from the older to the younger. <sighs> like in this moment, this guy is safe. He is, he is, this is going to be okay. If these are the first words out of the guy who's teaching with authority and who has control over this situation, I think I'm going to be okay. Jesus' second words, your sins are forgiven. He wasn't there to have his sins forgiven. He was there to have his legs healed. He was there to be made physically well. But Jesus speaks with authority. He is authoritative and he is controversial. At this point in the story, in this account, we're introduced to the scribes who are in or around the house. They're kind of on Jesus' tail at this point. If Jesus is a mere man... And he's saying things to someone like, your sins are forgiven. He could potentially be writing checks that his humanity can't cash. And the scribes are on to this in this moment. They're, they're right to be concerned about this guy who's saying that he has the authority to forgive sins. It's certainly not evil to be on guard for the purity of God's people. If a Jewish man is... Uh, claiming to forgive sins as only God can do, that's reserved for God alone, then the scribes are actually standing on a pretty solid footing. But Jesus in this moment, he perceives their thoughts and he flips the script on them. And so he has a third word in this account. He says, the, the account that Matthew gives us is, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said, why do you guys think evil in your hearts? He just like has the first word of confrontation here. He says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But, you got to see this, but that you know, that you may know the Son of Man, that's a favorite title of his, for, of, of his for himself out of Daniel chapter 7, has authority, that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then looks and says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the guy gets up and he goes home. I want us to, to consider for a moment the scope of the healing here. This man was so unable to walk that his friends, four of them, had to carry him to the scene. And then they couldn't get in and they have to carry him up onto the roof. They have to tear it off and they have to lower him in. This is desperate intercession. 
It's desperate intercession. Intercession means intervening on behalf of a friend, purposefully bringing him to Jesus. They are boldly where they need to be, bringing this man boldly to where he needs to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus in this moment values their faith, forgives the man's sins, and heals his body completely. And the guy gets up. Imagine seeing this in this moment. Maybe you're familiar with him. These aren't big towns. You've likely seen people around synagogue or in public squares. and they're, they're, you, You've seen this. You may know this person. You may know his family. And he, you know his legs are atrophied beyond belief. And he gets up, strength in his legs, and he picks up his own bed. And then he goes home. His reaction to Jesus is obedience. He walks himself home with an entirely new world in front of him. That's what happens when we meet Jesus. An entirely new world opens up before us. This guy had probably been taught from an early age that there was something very deficient in him and very deficient potentially in his parents. There's some sort of sin, there's something present here that has caused this great affliction and difficulty and suffering. And so as such, it's not likely that he would have viewed God as his friend. He wouldn't have thought of Yahweh, the God of Israel, as his friend. He would have thought of him as righteous and as judge and as king and as authoritative and powerful and having dominion, all of those things, yes, but probably not on the level of friend. But now, what Jesus pronounces that whatever, this, whatever sin this guy is guilty of, which he for sure, he's human, he's born of men, he has sin, Jesus assures him it's all forgiven. I, I'm just trying to put myself into this scenario. It would be so hard to believe in that moment. Jesus hasn't done, he hasn't healed him yet. The first thing Jesus says is, take heart. My son, your sins are forgiven and you're like still like the adrenaline is pumping like crazy. You're trying to just like locate yourself in the moment and Jesus is saying your sins are forgiven. Jesus knows the reality of what this man ultimately most, what what he most needs. He most needs to be made right with God. He most needs the mercy of God upon him. He needs to receive it for himself. Jesus says, but that you may know the son of man has authority to forgive sins as only God can. Get up and walk yourself home. Jesus is authoritative and controversial, bringing joy to the undeserving. The majority of people I know uh, have a hard time believing that through faith in Christ, their sins are forgiven. All of them. Guilty consciences plague people inside of the church in a similar way that they plague people outside of the church. I wonder as I'm preparing this sermon, I'm just like, I'm, I'm wondering if is, is one of the key reasons to believe, that one of the key reasons that we struggle with believing that God forgives all of our sin is because we don't feel like our sins are forgiven. We don't have any, we, 
we're consistently falling on our faces, we're consistently messing up, and we don't have a feeling of absolution. We don't have a feeling of atonement. We have a feeling of being a screw-up and not being able to get it right, whether it's our thoughts or whether it's our actions or whether it's our words or whether it's our attitudes. We're constantly falling in similar holes. I know it's there. I know it's there. Like that seems to be our story. And then, and, and so many people I know, just based on their personality or maybe based on their upbringing and the home and the family system that they grew up in or, or the church system that they grew up in, guilt is just a regular part of your relationship with God. But I need you to hear this, Christian, follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus. I need you to hear this. God's forgiveness does not depend on your feelings. The forgiveness of God offered to us in the perfect son of man who has gone to the cross to die for our sins and been raised on the third day. He has said to all who believe in him, you will never be put to shame. The forgiveness of God does not depend on our feelings. When the crowd see this, they're afraid. They glorify God. That means they give him praise. They start chattering. There's some buzz How is it that God has given authority to such men? They're still wrestling with the identity of Jesus, and rightly so. He's still unveiling his authority to them. Jesus is authoritative, and he is controversial, bringing joy to the undeserving here. Now, the crowds are the undeserving, and they're getting in on this joy. Have you ever seen another person um, experience the benefits of coming to know Christ or having their prayers answered, and you get stoked for them, and you start to buzz internally because something good has happened to them, and you're all giving credit to God? That's what's happening in this moment. Matthew wants us to read this account. He He wants his readers to imagine ourselves, themselves there, worshiping this man who could be God, is God, and recognizing that he really has come from God. Jesus has come with the authority of Yahweh. So what else does Jesus have authority over? This leads us to the second part of uh, this passage, the ostracized men and women, looking at the joy of complete acceptance. God is holy. He is undefiled beyond what we are capable of imagining. I could drone on for the next two hours here trying to describe God's holiness to you, and it would be absolutely weak and feeble and insufficient. You may get a better picture of his holiness than you have now, but there are no ways that a human being can describe the majesty and the wonder and the holiness and the purity and the set-apartness of God himself. The Bible describes him all over the place as a righteous judge. Times in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures describes him as a consuming fire. The the beginning of our Psalms open up in Psalm, Psalm 1, 1 and 2 like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The, the psalmist here is describing the separation of the righteous person who obeys and loves God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also the difference between the wicked person who rejects God. In Proverbs 3:33, the scriptures say, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. So this kind of this is just a, a quick sample of the kind of language that is all over our Old Testaments and all over our New Testaments as well. So the thought that a holy God set apart completely as creator over creation, the thought that he would identify himself as a friend of sinners, 
it's illogical in some ways as we're reading the scriptures. And so it, it, it breaks us a little bit. It breaks our imagination. It breaks our understanding of scripture unless we know the whole story of the Bible, particularly Genesis 1 through 3. Everything in the scriptures, you can just pull threads constantly from Genesis chapter 1, chapters 1, 2, and 3, all the way through to Revelation chapter 22. The whole story is integrated. From Genesis chapter 3 on, God is on a rescue mission of sinners. That's what he's doing in the world. He is redeeming. He is calling people to himself. He is covering their sin. He is making a way back to fellowship with him and communion with him. All humanity is incriminated over our sin. Every single human being who has ever lived deserves hell, deserves judgment. That's what we deserve. So the scriptures say things like, all like sheep have gone astray, or there is no one righteous, no, not one. According to the scriptures, nobody deserves the grace of God. The, be the, the best, most law-abiding citizen and the, the thuggish Antifa, you, you know, terrorist, all hopeless apart from the redeeming grace of God. All. And the whole Bible has this for its main theme. God is on a rescue mission to seek and to, and to draw the hopelessly lost to himself in order to remake them, in order to remake them, you and I, entirely, and name them sons and daughters. Such were some of us. Such were all of us. Cut off from the grace of God. But a moment came, a friend came, a word came, belief came, faith came by the grace of God to us. And we recognize that Jesus is Messiah. He draws us in. He renews us. He regenerates us. He extends his mercy. We see it. We can acknowledge it. We begin to speak of it. And then he uses us to do the same and to spread us as little statues made in his image, moving statues over the whole globe. Jesus finishes up his business in, in Capernaum. And this is where we see in one sentence, how Jesus got in on follow, or how Matthew rather got in on following Jesus. Matthew is a tax collector. He's at work. He's sitting at the tax booth. And we don't see all of the details in Matthew. We just see the sharp details. Jesus sees Matthew, calls him to follow him as a disciple would do to a rabbi. And Matthew rejects the, the riches that are his from being a tax collector. And he gets up and he begins to follow Jesus. Matthew obeys him. Matthew follows his word. He accepts his word. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. And they find themselves at a house with many tax collectors and infamous people, sinners. Their gospel accounts tell us that in Mark and Luke that this was actually at Matthew's house. He starts inviting his friends. He experiences some grace, some acceptance, maybe a new shot at becoming a, a good Jew again, a good Israelite again. And he begins to follow Jesus but it seems like the Pharisees are on Jesus' trail by this point, probably because word is getting out that he has claimed to forgive sins, which is a show of his non-visible to us authority. But he's also healing people and, and doing uncanny, like miraculous events. The natural world is obeying his voice. And so people, they, they see and they hear accounts of his visible 
witnessable authority as well. And these Pharisees, they come itching for a fight. They don't come directly to Jesus, but they take a back door to his disciples and they begin questioning these disciples. Why is he doing something so intimate like sharing a meal with people who are so unclean? According to Jewish law, you did not eat with tax collectors. You did not eat with sinners. That would make you unclean. Jesus is authoritative and he is, a, he is controversial. He brings joy to the undeserving and he brings anger to those who think that they are deserving. We need to understand this in this moment, just a quick aside and an application to our lives. After you have followed Jesus for a while, it can be easy to deny the grace that we needed yesterday to those who need it today. We can just forget that God has done a tremendous work through the Spirit of God, the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to clean us up. And we are 10 years later, not where we were 10 years ago, but we have a tendency to pomp and to puff ourselves up and to look at other people as if the grace of God is not available to them in the same way that it was available to us. We cannot afford to forget the necessity of mercy. Poverty is widespread in ancient Palestine. Uh, one way to escape poverty is to become a tax collector. Collect taxes from your fellow Jews and give that money after scraping a little off the top for yourself to the Romans. Um, a commentator on the scriptures, Frederick Dale Bruner on Matthew's fantastic. He, he writes, the tax collector betrayed their own people for their private interests. The tax collector betrayed their own people for their own private interests. This is why they were despised. They were sort of moral untouchable in society. And it had, being a tax collector or a tax gatherer, had major social implications as well. Um, so William Barclay writes this. He's a historian on Matthew. He says, by Jewish law, a tax gatherer was debarred from the synagogue. He was banned from church banned from church. He was included with things and beasts unclean. So tax collectors were deemed unclean. They were forbidden to be a witness in any case of law, in Jewish law. They could not be a witness. Robbers, murderers, and tax gatherers were classed together. So that's how they were regarded in their society. So the fact that Jesus calls Matthew to be his disciple and that Jesus was so willing to gather with other tax collectors over a meal and engage them as human beings made in the image of God shows in a striking way the depth of his forgiveness of sins. His willingness to include the unclean. He is authoritative and brings incredible joy to the undeserving. And he hears the, the over, the, these, he overhears these Pharisees questioning his disciples and he intervenes, perhaps shielding his disciples from more pressing questions about a man that they're still trying to figure out about things that they don't yet fully understand. And so to these Pharisees, to these morally serious ones, Jesus appears way too casual. He's way too easy on sinners. He's authoritative and he's controversial. He brings anger to the deserving, those who believe that they're deserving. And what Jesus does in this moment is he argues from common sense. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
And then he appeals to scripture. He's appealing back to the Hebrew scriptures into into Hosea. It's a book that is all about the, the mercy of God extended to the undeserving. And he says, those who are sick need the physician. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's the quote. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. To say, go and learn what this means to these scribes and to these Pharisees is brazen and it's confrontational. The Pharisees are highly educated people. They're keepers, they're teachers of the law. They are the ones who are used to being in the driver's seat and saying, go and learn what this means to the people. And now Jesus is flipping the script and he's actually saying it to them. He has positioned himself in spiritual authority over them. In the context of Hosea and in this context, Jesus is not devaluing sacrifice. In both cases, God is arguing that there is an order here. He's saying, I don't, I don't desire sacrifice. He's not saying that. He's saying first the moral law and then the ceremonial law. First the heart, then the action. God wants mercy in front of sacrifice. Jesus seeks disciples whose hearts lead their hands. Can you hear that this morning? That's what he's seeking of you. As a disciple, he's looking for a man and a woman and a child whose heart leads the hands. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength and your neighbor as yourself. I have not come to call those who, are, who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And this is what God has been doing since the garden. This is what God has been doing with humanity since Adam and Eve and since their exile from the garden. Which leads me to the third portion of this passage here, the ignorant but teachable ones, the joy of the new covenant. Now, uh, we're going to see another group of people come to Jesus and question him. There is some, potentially there's some tones of conflict here. The disciples say, hey, why do John's, John the Baptist's disciples, why do we fast often, probably twice a week, according to a Jewish law that had been written in after the time? Fasting is not commanded twice a week in the scriptures. It's commanded once in the Day of Atonement. But Jewish law has developed over the centuries, and they're fasting twice a week, and they're holding people to it. The Pharisees are doing this. John the Baptist's disciples are likely doing this. And so this interaction here with John the Baptist's disciples toward Jesus is a pretty straightforward interaction interaction. Um, and, but it, to me, at least, where it feels confusing is the parable that Jesus uses, or these two metaphors that Jesus used to differentiate the old covenant from the new covenant, where he talks about sewing a, a new patch on an old garment, because that new patch will rip and tear away from the garment, or putting new wine into old wineskins. In the process of fermentation, wine expands fills the wineskins would fill with air and they would stretch. And so if you've got old wineskins that you put new wine into, those are already stretched wineskins. You put new wine and then it ferments and then it bursts the skin. So Jesus is saying, no, you use new wineskins, new wine, and that will preserve the wine there. He's using wine as a metaphor for the new covenant, the, the bread of uh, the, the bread of communion and the cup, the blood of Christ. Um, these things, they've confused me my whole life because probably because I don't put wine into wineskins and I don't patch my clothes. I, I just don't, like, I, it, it takes a minute for us to get into the historical context and we do need to do some work there. 
But the point that Jesus is trying to make here is that the old covenant gives way to the new covenant. That's the point that he's trying to foreshadow here. The old covenant is on the brink of fulfillment and a new age has arrived in him. He's fulfilling one in order to bring another into effect. So think about this for a moment. Just if you're, if you're wondering, like, could I simultaneously live under both old covenant and new covenant? Would, it, would that be confusing to us? What if, what if you were to live under the sacrificial system and so as you, as, you, as you send before God for part of your atonement, if you were to bring an animal to the priests at the temple and to sacrifice that animal for the atonement of your sins, while also trusting that Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for your sins, would that be a little bit confusing? This is the first time in Matthew that Jesus foreshadows his death which along with the resurrection is what brings the new covenant, his death and his resurrection are going to be what bring the new covenant into effect. It's also the first time that he calls himself or he refers to himself as the bridegroom. The bridegroom in the Old Testament was known as was Yahweh. Israel was known as the bride of Yahweh. Isaiah 62 verse 5 talks about that specifically. All Israel's hopes... Their collective hopes were in the fact that as a nation, they were the bride of God waiting for redemption. And so they're fasting as they've developed Jewish law and they're fasting often. Their fasting is a form of mourning over the state of things. They're now an occupied people in their capital city, in their capital region. It was a petition for God to deliver Israel. Their fasting was a petition for God to deliver Israel from the Romans and to purify Israel from sinners. Jesus is pro-fasting. He's not anti-fasting. He says as much in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you fast, as he gives commands in his Sermon on the Mount. But at the question of John's disciples, Jesus is saying it's totally inappropriate and self-aggrandizing to fast in a season of celebration. Messiah is, I'm here with people. The king has come. The pouty kid at the birthday party doesn't fit. The groomsmen and the bridesmaids who are all sad at the wedding, they don't fit. It's inappropriate. Jesus is saying the bridegroom He is the bridegroom. God himself is present with his bride. God is with us. Remember in Matthew, he opens in Matthew chapter one with the title of Jesus will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is with his disciples. God is actively, presently working to deliver Israel and the nations. But nobody, it's so surprising because nobody expects it to happen the way that it is. They just don't see it like this. They have some view of Messiah being human, but they don't have a view of Messiah being both God fully and man fully. And a time would come when Jesus' disciples would mourn, and they would mourn with prayer and fasting. They would go back to the capital city in Jerusalem, and they would wait for God to come, to show himself strong again, which he would. The Holy Spirit would come at Pentecost, And God, through his disciples, is still with us by his spirit. The spirit of God is confirming continually for us. He's interceding, confirming for us, preaching to us Jesus' authority, giving us joy as his people, and angering the world who continues to reject him. 
That's the reality of the world that we live in. We should not be surprised when the world is angry. When the world is angry at us, takes aim at us, rages at our crisis pregnancy centers, rages at us, at our churches, our buildings. When national law is, federal law is passed, we should not be surprised at the rage. We cannot return rage for rage. We must return mercy even if it costs us. It's the way of Christ. And it takes a far stronger person to remain merciful in that kind of intense hostility and persecution than to just rage back and to throw some blows. I want to ask you, church, here's where we close. How do you view Jesus' authority? How do you, the person in your seat, the person in your flesh, in your skin, how do you view Jesus' authority? What's your view of it? Does it cause you anger? Is that the season of life that you're in right now? You're you're dealing with illness, sickness, fractures in relationships, something that has really got you off kilter, your own besetting sin. You're you're constantly like falling in a hole. Are Are you angry? Like, God, why will you not deliver me? Does his authority cause you anger? Does his authority cause you joy? Here's what I want to ask of you this morning. Think, how can you respond today to Jesus's authority? What does it look like for you to respond today to his authority? What has he been asking of you that you're too casual about? I have a long season of my life, a decade fully, where I knew he was speaking to me and I would, I would lean in for a minute and then just go off chasing the sin that I was so appetized over. But he was constantly talking to me in my spirit. And I had disregarded it to such a degree that it, his voice became distant to me. But I would imagine that there are people here gathering with us today where his voice feels distant. But if you stop and you think about it, he's still speaking to you. He's still talking. He has not shut you out and shut you off. What does it look like for you to respond to him? Can you show him in a way that the Spirit of God names for you the worth and the respect that he deserves? The table, the bread, the cup, they slow us down to see and to feel and to regard and to notice Jesus' authority. Every week as we come to the table, the bread and cup remind us of the mercy of God available to his people who through his beloved son's life brings each of us into his family and assures us of complete acceptance. Our forgiveness, our sense of acceptance is not dependent on how we feel about it, but on God's declaration to us. So I want you to take heart this morning, church, as you come to the table this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, Speak in a way that only you can, by your Spirit. Exalt the the worth and the goodness and the authority and even the controversy of your Son. Wrestle us down to determine which side we are are on, who we will give our allegiance to. May it be by your graciousness and by your power at work in us that we give our allegiance to your son. And whatever it is that you're calling us to, a moment of obedience today, Lord, would we be obedient and humble servants 
coming to you with open hands saying, if that's what you want, Lord, I'll go, I'll do, I'll say, I'll be, I'll wait. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.